So, Robin, thank you very much for agreeing to chat with me. I really appreciate it. This is great to be here. I'm looking forward. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about your book and many other things I'm sure that we'll uh, get to. But I was, you know, I was thinking about this podcast and I was thinking, I listened to a few of the book talks that you already gave. And I, I'm, I'm hesitant to make you rehearse, you know, all of those talks. Uh, I, I listened to a few of them and I'm sure you've given, you know, some variation on the same talk a number of times now. So I'm kind of keen to uh, perhaps explore some areas that you haven't explored in these book conversations that you've done. Sounds great. Yeah. But I guess just for any listeners who don't know anything about the book, um, I, I'm sure you won't mind if we start by me just asking you to give us a, a, a quick summary or uh, recapitulation. Right now, I have two books, actually. One came out two years ago called The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life on Robots Rule the Earth. And the paperback version of that just came out in the US a few weeks ago. Uh, but the book that I've been talking more about lately is called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, co-authored with Kevin Similar. Mm. And the title there is an, is an allusion to the elephant in the room, the thing that we all know is there but don't want to talk about. And the elephant in the brain is the thing in your brain that you know is there but you don't want to talk about. And that's your hidden motives, most of which don't look as nice as you'd like them to, which is why you try to point other people to other motives. So now... Our mm -hmm. book's been reviewed by psychologists, uh, refereed by them, and they all basically say, our, our basic claim is kind of well-known, uh, maybe we explain it well, uh, that people quite often don't know why they do things. They, they are wrong about their motives. But we think the original part of our book is to say, uh, and that actually applies to a lot of concrete areas in your life where you think you know what your motives are. And that's the, the main meat of the book. And so we think it's more directed at policy people and social scientists than psychologists, Right. Although we found it hard to get them to engage because this book is classified as psychology, so they don't see it as their thing. Right. Uh, so we, we talk specifically about how you're wrong about your motives in 10 areas uh, to illustrate. I mean, we think there'd be another 20 or 30 areas we could go through and say the same thing. But we say you're wrong about your motives in body language, in laughter, in conversation, in um, charity, in religion, in politics, in education, in medicine. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a wide range of areas. In each area, we say you have the standard story about why you do things, like you say you go to school to learn the material, and uh, there's a whole bunch of details that just don't fit very well with that story. And then there's another story, say in education, that you're showing off, uh, how smart, conscientious, et cetera, that you are, and that makes a lot more sense of the details. Mm -hmm. And we do this in each of the 10 areas to say um, that our usual reasons don't really work very well as explanations. They they work in the sense that sometimes those usual reasons do apply, uh, and so they work as an excuse. So the excuse, the dog ate my homework, works in part because dogs sometimes do eat homework. <laughs> the dragon ate my homework doesn't work. <laughs> but usually when a kid says the dog ate my homework, you should wonder that they really if the dog ate the homework, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, in, in, the, in all these areas of life, we're, we're focused on the most common explanation for our behavior, the most common motive. Uh, and of course, any area of life is, is enormously complicated. Lots and lots of motives are relevant and, and averaging over behavior, lots and lots of motives show up. But there's what we most often say is our motive and then what's most often is our main motive. And that's the key difference we're pointing to. And sometimes people are consciously aware that they're not being honest about their motives and other times they just are not very aware of that. And that varies by topic and by person and it's complicated and there's lots of intermediate positions where people are sort of aware. Mm -hmm. And our main message is you are 
all of us are just wrong about our motives a lot and that this makes policy go wrong. So most you know, policy analysts who have been trying to reform education have focused on how to help people learn more material faster. And they've come up with lots of ways to do that over the decades. And we've been almost completely uninterested in adopting those reforms. Hmm. And I would suggest that's because we kind of know that we don't actually want the thing we say we want. And so we're not very interested in new reforms to help get more of it. Right. Okay. Very interesting. So, I mean, one way you could kind of summarize the book is that you're basically saying that almost everything humans do, they do for reasons that they lie about and, and often do not even really understand. Is that too, I don't know is if, that too simple? I mean, almost everything might be like connote 98% or something. <laughs> we would certainly give you more than 50%, perhaps more than 70%. Okay. Okay. Great. So, you know, one thing that I haven't heard you talk too much about the book and the different book talks that I've, that I have listened to is maybe you could say a little bit about your larger motivation and purpose behind, behind the book. I mean, I think you were just sort of alluding to, uh, wanting to shape the way that policymakers see things. Is that your main kind of point of leverage that you're trying to affect in with this, with this project? Well, I see myself as having been forced onto this topic. Mm. This isn't a topic I chose for myself Interesting. in the sense that, uh, Early in my career, I was focused on how to make the world better, and I was interested in making new social institutions and reforming social institutions so as to make things better. Mm -hmm. And the reason I moved into social science is because compared to the other areas I was in before, physical sciences, software, uh, device engineering, it seems a lot easier to find big improvements in our social institutions. That's what really inspired me in the first place. Hmm. Um, the more you think about it, you, you say, and it's not just that we have some ideas of things that might be improvements. We, we have concrete proposals for improvements that we have lab experiments supporting and mathematical theory and even field experiments. We, we can go down the path of making reforms that work well and showing that they work well, and the world is just not interested. And so that's been a, a big problem and puzzle for me in my career early on. Hmm. And then I moved into areas where the standard stories just didn't seem to make sense. So my first job out of uh, my PhD program was a postdoc in health policy at UC Berkeley mm -hmm. under the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I had been mostly a theorist before then, uh, but that was an opportunity to spend a lot of time diving into one area deeply, uh, health policy. And in that area, the standard story just didn't seem to make sense of a lot of details. It just didn't fit. Right. And, and looking in other areas over the years, that's also happened. Um, there's a standard story, there's a bunch of details, and they just don't match up. And so I'm forced into saying, what's going on here? I mean, I, I would have been happy if our standard story made sense, because then I could have jumped from there on to do policy reform to, to make things better. That's, that's, that was the plan. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of what I thought were promising ways to do that. Right. Um, but yeah, I was hit this obstacle. Um, you, you have a theory about what we're doing in it fit some things and you make a reform based on that and people just don't care. And then you look at a lot of other details and, and it just doesn't fit that sort of story anyway. And you go, well, what's going on here? Right, right. So, okay. So you come across all of these constantly recurring hurdles to communicating what you think are patently, you know, rational superior options or policies. And you, you're, you keep encountering the same kind of roadblocks that in your view have something to do with uh, these dubious and hard to understand ways that humans process the world around them. So you decide to dedicate your energy to understanding what exactly are those psychological hangups that we're all so affected by in ways that we hardly understand. Yes, although that's more of a gradual thing. So I, I 
in health economics, I, I noticed uh, these puzzles and I came up with this alternative motive theory that made more sense of that. And, and that was interesting. And that opened my eyes to other options. But I still at that point hadn't like devoted myself to that as the pro problem mm. or, or the topic. It was more over the years, um, you know, continuing to have that be an issue. And then finally starting to write books and asking what I should write a book about. And in this case, having a co-author who, you know, approached me to work together and he was interested in writing about that. And that, that was really the key that prompted writing this particular book is is my co-author. Right, right, cool. So it seems like you have a very strong belief in the power of of ideas and of, you know, rational inquiry and and dialogue to, you know, change the change the world. It sounds like that's one of your main kind of initial motivations and um everything you're working on seems kind of guided by that to some degree as you describe it just now. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about how how you see that kind of your 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 mental model of how these things work, um, in particular, like I wonder in in setting out to write this book, for instance, the elephant in the brain, is your hope to show the realities of human psychology and the ways that you do in order to kind of make policymakers themselves kind of update their own viewpoints about themselves and and the policymaking processes? So are you kind of trying to chip away at the actual movers of power and the way they see themselves and understand the world? Or are you kind of resigned to the fact that they're all kind of beholden to these processes that they don't really have much uh, direct control over? And your, your, your strategy is rather a kind of route around where you are hoping to convince like a large number of smart, reflective people who then through, you know, taking on these ideas and updating their own attitudes and behaviors accordingly will then affect you know, the policy levers that way. I don't really have a detailed plan. Right. <laughs> Nor is my co-author. Uh, it seems overdetermined in the sense that, like, if I was focused on a really small, narrow question, uh, then it would be a much more legitimate, you know, challenge to say, well, how do you see this helping? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is the question I ask most of my intellectual, you know, academic colleagues who seem to be working on very narrow topics. I, I ask, well, you know, how do you think if we understand this a bit better, that'll make any difference? Mm -hmm. But, but this book on the elephant of the brain is on such a big, broad topic where we're claiming that, you know, large, huge fractions of our world we've just misunderstood. It seems like that's just got to be useful. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, however exactly you plan on using it. Uh, I mean, often I've, I've had the sense that, you know, often young people, say a 20-year-old, uh, they see the world around them. They don't quite understand it. And they see a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of bullshit. Mm -hmm. and, and they say, well, you know, what's really going on? And I've always like wanted there to be a book in the library where you could say, you want to know what's going on? You ready for this? <laughs> Here it is. Right. You might not like it, but uh, you asked. And, uh, you know, I would like there to be some intellectual community, at least, that's aware of this and, and takes it on and builds on it. So I'm actually painfully aware that many people through history have seen a lot of what we describe here. Mm -hmm. And they've written it down and other people have quoted it and, and passed it on a bit. And yet it doesn't seem to grow or last. Right. So the really hard question is not can we say this clearly in a way that the readers who read it will understand it, but can we make that build and last into a you know literature that that understands this as as the the background and builds on it? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's just fascinating because, as I'm sure you know, you know, and as you talk about in the book, of course, that these these processes that you outline in the book are there for very strong, powerful, enduring reasons. And it is just a fascinating question to me. I, I don't necessarily have a particularly uh, compelling 
plan or proposal either. Uh, but it's a very fascinating question to me about how, you know, intellectual comprehension of these issues can be translated into, yeah, activities or projects that actually allow us to kind of move the needle of social irrationality. Right. I mean, however optimistically I thought when I was young, by this point in my life, I, I think I should admit that uh, I am, you know, one part in seven billion people. Mm -hmm. And I should expect to have a small percentage influence uh, that might be upped by some factors. Uh, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, academics, intellectuals perhaps have a somewhat disproportionate influence because uh, ab abstract ideas can spread so far. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can even have a disproportionate influence over intellectuals because most of them are focused on such narrow, <laughs> uninteresting things <laughs> yeah. that don't have much big impact. And so they neglect the big, important questions often. Mm -hmm. And so I can have more impact on that. But of course, even moving a, a, a you know some community of intellectuals in changing their views on abstract topics, there's still a big path between that and concrete policy changes. Mm. Uh, I'm very well aware of, of all the obstacles there. Right, right. Yeah, I was just curious if you had any any takes on that. Here's a question I could ask you, Robin. What would you say is the weakest part of the book, do you think? Oh, well, that's a question I should have anticipated. <laughs> it's okay if you don't have any um, particularly. No, I, I guess, uh, I mean, well, what most people perceive to be the weakest part is where's all the policy prescriptions. Okay. <laughs> people say you presented a problem, but you didn't solve it. <laughs> And there's kind of a critique that you shouldn't really present a problem unless you have a 12-point plan to solve it. Right. What's the point of hearing about a problem unless you can hear about a solution? And, of course, you know, people don't quite mean that. People are actually happy to hear about lots of long-standing problems they don't have solutions for as long as there's an existing literature on it. They're just more – they raise the standard for something new. Uh, so, you know, maybe knowing that that uh, strong demand, maybe we should have spent a little more time about policy solutions. But But it's hard. And uh, in a sense, that's less modular. That it, there's, it's nice to have a, a chunk on a thing that like has a lot of internal connections and fewer external connections. That's the idea of modularity. Mm -hmm. And intellectually, you should, you know, all else equal, be trying to write modular things, things where it, it's a you're carving nature at the joints, right? And uh, putting a chunk that naturally goes together. Right. Well, okay. I could, I guess, I could give you a, a slight challenge, uh, just to just to Please. move the conversation forward. It's not really an objection, but it's perhaps a a question that, at least in my reading of the book, I don't know if you really address this head-on as maybe you could. I mean, I think one semi-reasonable response to, to the larger message of your book is to say that, it seems to me anyway, humans, these processes that you talk about, um, where humans are constantly uh, kind of misleading people about what they're really trying to do with, with their different behaviors, it seems to me that humans are largely locked into these processes. Like they're kind of forced into it by external social structures and institutions. So like one objection would be that, and again, it's not really an objection, but just a kind of different thought is that I actually think a, a large number of humans kind of do see the, the phenomena that you're talking about. And they're even somewhat aware of it in themselves. I think we're, we're often much more aware of it in other people. We're pretty good at sniffing these things out in other people, like when they're misleading or they're, they're, you know, pursuing ulterior motives. And what is it? when they're seen as rivals, when they're definitely. seen as rivals, right. When, when the motivations are right, we're really good at seeing other people do these sorts of things. And I think generally, um, at least among a fair number of people, quite a large number of people, we dislike this sort of, uh, constant ubiquitous kind of deception that, that takes place throughout society. So I would say that actually there's a pretty high awareness 
we can debate the extent of that awareness, but there's a fairly high awareness among humans that these sorts of things go on and that they lead to all different types of problems. And that generally many people would prefer to have more transparent and honest relationships and communications and behaviors. But it seems to me anyway, that a lot of the reason why these uh, phenomena are so pervasive is because we feel like we have to do it in order to keep our job or in order to, you know, maintain our prestige in, in a particular uh, network that we're in or whatever it might be. So I guess what, what I'm curious about is, do you think that significant changes to institutions might be able to uh, cause fairly rapid and significant um, kind of freeing or, or liberating of people from these kind of perverse uh, phenomena that you identify? Well, I, I definitely think institutional changes can make big differences in yeah. behavior. Uh, th that's clear. I, I would put much less hope in the um, the institutional changes uh, making people uh, honest and open about things. Mm. I think largely we should expect people to continue to want to uh, project the uh, motives that they want to project and uh, reforms that try to force them to be honest will probably not go well because people will resist that much more. Right. Uh, it's much more likely to su succeed in letting con people continue to pretend to want the things they pretend to want while actually giving them more of the things they really want. So my explanation for why people have been disinterested in a lot of proposed social policy so far is that social scientists and policy analysts tend to come up with reforms that give people more of the things they pretend to want, right? which they don't actually want so much, which is why they're not so interested. And uh, if you give them a proposal that gives them more of what they really want, but you force them to be honest and open about that, that's also not very appealing mm -hmm. because they didn't want to admit that. So I, I think you would want to look at reforms that let people pretend to want what they pretend to want, but, but give them more of what they really want. I think that's the key to finding proposals that people would actually like to adopt. Right. Okay. So, I mean, another way to come at that uh, on the same angle that I was suggesting in my, in my last question is that it seems to me that a lot of the perverse social psychological processes you outline are basically what they, what a lot of them have in common is that people are trying to do this kind of uh, really simple, basic social activity of uh, building alliances and affiliations. So yeah, something I kept thinking reading your book was if, if human beings just generally had more stable uh, peer groups and, and close knit communities where they felt secure in their community and they felt like their affiliations and alliances were all, you know, really strong and healthy and stable and reliable. Do you, do you think that right. that would be a major <laughs> uh, countervailing force that would maybe like free people up from these kinds of perverse uh, attitudes and behaviors? Uh, well, let me give you an e example from uh, um, my life of uh, and a colleague. I, I won't name him as for reasons you'll see, but I have a colleague who, uh, you know, years ago said that uh, if you think about people in marriages uh, show, showing their partner that they care mm -hmm. about them, uh, you can say there's a lot of behavior whereby people seem to uh, spend a lot of resources, uh, you might think of it as waste, to uh, reassure their partners that they care about them. Mm -hmm that they are concerned about them and, and listen to them, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? And uh, my colleague said, uh, that, that's a shame for most people that have to do that. I'm in a relationship, I'm in a marriage where we don't have to do that. We're, we're just sure that we like each other. So we don't have to do all this extra signaling. We don't have to go out of our way to, uh, you know, say how nice you look or how much I like this or mm -hmm. et cetera. 
and and I think my colleague has changed his mind over the years. Hmm. In that, that there are there are almost no such relationships. Hmm. Uh, you 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 almost never reach this point where now that we know we like each other, we don't have to show it anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I expect that's also true for groups. Um, even with very strongly bonded groups, uh, you still kind of have to show that you are bonded to the group and loyal to it. Right. Okay. Your point is well taken on that. I, and I definitely agree on some level, These the need for these types of uh, behaviors perhaps never go away. They're, they're fundamental kind of social behaviors that are necessary. But isn't it true that in, in most of the examples in your book, most of the different issues in the different chapters of your book, the, the really catastrophic and perverse outcomes from these phenomena have to do with the way that they're currently filtered through these like mass, so like centralized organizations, right? So to take the healthcare example, for instance, you know, as you talk about medicine and healthcare, you know, performs a kind of signaling function and a lot of the money spent on, you know, government or national healthcare systems is really just this like huge uh, institutionalized outgrowth of really basic kind of interpersonal uh, psychological and emotional needs. And it's hugely wasteful and it's hugely perverse and problematic. But the, the, what makes it so problematic and perverse is, is the way that it's kind of exaggerated and uh, blown up and filtered through this like complex machinery that, that also very few of us really even understand. So it, it seems, it seems like a, a point that cuts across a lot of your, your the issues that you talk about in the book is if we had smaller, healthier, uh, more, you know, human scale uh, relationships and communities, again, the, these issues or, or, you know, phenomena wouldn't go away exactly, but the perverse outcomes, it, it seems like almost across all of the examples you give, the perverse outcomes would be significantly constrained. I don't know if, if that's how you see it or not, but. I'm, I'm not seeing it yet, but if we explore it further, maybe you'll persuade right. me. Uh, if I think about, say, education signaling or um, medical signaling mm-hmm. in particular, um, you know, in a very decentralized medical world, people still are eager to spend a lot of money on medicine and to uh, do things that, that seem visibly, you know, like things everybody else would say is good, even if they haven't looked at the mm-hmm. quality. Um, in a more structured, organized world where uh, those feelings are channeled through the other institutions, some of that structuring and channeling makes it worse, and some of it makes mm. it better. And uh, I'm not sure I can see a overall trend exactly. Uh, so, I mean, one interesting, you know, thing that I've had to admit, and it's not my prior, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that in many, uh, you know, rich Western countries, socialized medicine probably reduces spending. Mm. Uh, that is, uh, when you put the medical problem in the government's lap, and um, and you also like are wary of giving them too much budget, then uh, I think they seem to spend less than they otherwise might if it were private. Uh, well, certainly, you know, the United States spends the most, and and we have the most freedom of individuals to spend mm-hmm. more uh, compared to the others. And so it could be, at least, that uh, in a certain political context, the uh, socializing medicine actually um, makes it harder for any one person to show how much they care about any one other person by spending more on them, or pushing them to spend more and pushing, you know, spending more mm-hmm. personally. Uh, you can push the, the, the socialized system to spend more, uh, but that's through this urge to show how much you care about your country or, or 
large community rather than your urge to show how much you care about a particular person, if that's weaker, then might plausibly actually spend less. Because when you start to spend a lot and that hurts the budget, you start to back off and say, well, you know, we can't spend, you know, we got to have limits. Right. Where you don't say that so much in a personal context. Uh, Hmm. Right. Well, but isn't it true that like if I'm trying to signal to my, you know, relevant community that I'm a caring person and one way that I might do that in our currently organized society is, you know, I might support, you know, universal healthcare or some policy that looks to other people like very compassionate. Um, But the only reason that's the way that that, the only reason that's the relevant and effective way to signal in my mind is because I'm playing to this like big fake audience that is society or, or, you know, the nation or the nation or whatever it might be. Um, So it seems to me like so much of the perverse social behavior we see today is because you have so many people running around with this kind of like cosmopolitan kind of like uh, uh, model in their head where like they're trying to not just impress the actual people that are in their life that matter the most to them, but in large part because they're so kind of alienated and there's so much anime and, you know, economic anxiety and all these sorts of factors that basically make them, you know, so many people today, you know, especially in kind of educated urban circles, like they don't actually have tight knit uh, communities. They, they kind of have an image in their head where they're like a, you know, a relevant and interesting player in this like large international uh, status game or prestige game. And a lot of the signaling, a lot of the, the political energy, for instance, for something like, you know, let's say centralized government welfare programs that might be, you know, really rational or, or have negative welfare effects. A lot of that drive and the, the, the political signaling and energy and motivation for pushing that stuff through is you know, and I think this is consistent with with the larger spirit of your book. If I, if I read you correctly, it's it's people trying to kind of uh, satisfy relatively simple, basic psychological needs related to community and and kind of in group stability. But they're do, but but the, the what's perverse is that they're doing it um, on this like really large centralized level. And it seems to me that that's in that has a uh, a lot to do with the fact that they don't actually a lot of people don't actually have the tight knit communities that they could actually do this, this type of signaling on a much smaller scale with, and, you know, with less damage to society and also more, you know, far more, um, you know, welfare, you know, improvement for that, for themselves and for their own lives. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of what I'm thinking about, like how much of, how much of the really perverse effects of what you outline, uh, come from the fact that we're, we have really uprooted communities and we're trying to play these games on kind of insane, large scale, uh, centralized, like, you know, signaling platforms. Well, yeah. And let's try to walk through this. Um, so, uh, it's definitely true that, uh, the size of your community, the size of your social world makes a difference to Mm -hmm. your behavior. Clearly. Uh, most of the motives that we're talking about in our book are motives that continue to be relevant on smaller community scales. Uh, but they do play out differently there clearly. And so, uh, it's worth, you know, it's interesting to think about, which kind of problems get worse and which get better uh, as you focus on smaller communities mm-hmm. versus larger ones. Um, in very small communities, say the, you know, the forager community of 30 to 50 people or 20 to 50 people uh, in a small band, uh, you know, that's an extreme version, but humans live there for a long time. So a lot of our evolved mechanisms and intuitions are, are right. tuned for that environment. Uh, you know, a striking thing is that people know a lot about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
They uh, they they have a they over years and years they've heard stories about you, gossip about you. They've seen you a lot, and so uh, there's much less need to focus on simple surface uh, signals of of things that uh, you know that someone might want to mm. see who hardly knew you. Whereas in larger communities, you're much more often dealing with people who hardly know anything about you. And so then uh, the simple surface signals mm. matter a lot more. And uh, that's certainly a big difference between small and large communities is sort of the depth of knowledge people have about you and therefore how much context they have to interpret anyone right. they see. So, you know, you can certainly see you know, a lot of failings of modern societies is due to uh, this fact that so many people interact mm -hmm. with people they hardly know. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, conformity pressures uh, work a lot stronger in the world where you hardly know people. If, if there's a thing you might, somebody might see about you, and if they saw that one thing, then that would just be the end of it. They think you were a terrible person. Well, then you just, you just can't mm -hmm. do that thing. <laughs> no matter, you know, how it might make sense in some context, they're just not going to see the context. So you just have to stay away from it. And so, Conformity pressures can just be much stronger there, where if there's a thing that you're not supposed to be doing or you look bad, then everybody's kind of got to not do that. In a world where everybody's, you know, almost everybody's known you their whole life, they will take any one thing in the context of all these other things mm. they know about you. And so now it's much more possible to be different on one thing in a context, in a way that makes sense, given all the other things there are about right. you. And so, you know, that's definitely something that happens in a larger right. world. Uh, clearly, you know, you can just know how trustworthy people are, for example. In a larger world, people just have to distrust each other more. Uh, and so you have to pay more attention to just showing simple trustworthiness signals, uh, clearly. And um, like for education, uh, for job skills, say, in a world where people have seen you work for years, uh, there's much less need to give indirect signals of your work quality and your mm -hmm. abilities. Uh, right, they've grown up with you. They saw you, you know, hunt that animal. They saw you build mm -hmm. that hut. Uh, they saw you discover that berry that works. You know, um, whereas in our modern world, we're going to go to a future employer who hardly knows anything about us mm -hmm. and say, "Hire me." And so now we need to come up with signals that will, you know, meet are meaningful across that chasm. And the various anecdotes we could tell about things we did as a kid <laughs> are just not going to cut it. And so we have to have these very standardized credentials mm -hmm. uh, that will that will work in that context. And that certainly changes how we show off and what kind of features of ourselves we focus on. And that, you know, some of those are negative changes, but of course we gain a lot of advantages from our large integrated world economy right. and society. So it's not clear to me the net right the net and, trade -off and also right now there are all all of these really strange and confusing frictions, I think, that are arising from the different spheres of of human life. Um, kind of coming up against each other in ways that we're not fully aware of or that, you know, are changing very rapidly. Like, for instance, I mean, it's interesting to connect what we're talking about now with your book, um, with this recent episode you had with your, uh, you know, viral experience on online. Like, I wonder, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting example. And we don't necessarily need to get into the details of it any more than you feel like. But from a meta perspective, right. you know, I think we're going to see this sort of stuff more and more. Sure. Where... Someone doing something, you know, that in a particular sphere on particular assumptions makes perfect sense is completely innocuous. So like something as simple as, you know, thinking on a blog, uh, writing, writing some thoughts or thought experiments or posing some interesting questions on a personal blog. People have been doing that for a while. Academics do it. You know, it's not unheard of. It's not unprecedented. But but now it's that's kind of encountering 
the this new sort of media environment where other types of people are being exposed to it that wouldn't normally be exposed to it. And other motivated actors, such as, you know, motivated journalists, uh, now have incentives to interpret things in, in a certain way. And th- these things are leading to all of these kind of complex um, uh, margins where, you know, doing something in one sphere leads to insane, unpredictable consequences in, in another, you know, sphere on a different level. And so I wonder, I, I'm, it's an interesting question, like, have you connected right. this so personal experience you've had <laughs> recently uh, with, the, you know, would, in some sense, could you say it's kind of already comprehended by the book? <laughs> well, I've certainly learned from the experience and then tried to integrate it more into my you know, larger mm-hmm. perspective on, on these things. Um, I guess I'd say that, I mean, some people would say, well, you can anticipate these connections and you should, and therefore and I and people like me are wrong mm-hmm. to have not done so more thoroughly. Um you know, that, that does come at the cost of sort of modularity and separateness of, of different intellectual mm-hmm. discussions and different discussions. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that is a, a cost, I guess, of that. So the, the scenario here is that um, in our society, there are these uh, crimes um, of, say, sexism, racism, uh, promotion of rape, things like that. And uh, they are you know, norms against them. And as you know, uh, humans have the norm, the meta norm, that if you see somebody violating a norm, you're Mm -hmm. supposed to uh, do something about it. And for these extreme norms, uh, these extremely strong norms, uh, you know, there's a strong penalty for it all seeming like you would uh, violate the norm. And so people are really quite eager to, uh, you know, go as far as they can to show that they are in support of the norm. So in, in our book, we give the, this example of, of Stalin giving a speech, or not Stalin, a speech and Stalin's name was mentioned. Everybody stood up and clapped for 10 minutes, and they were all afraid if they sat down first, uh, bad things would happen, and finally somebody sat down right. first, and they went to Siberia. And so you can end up with these equilibriums where everybody is so eager to show support for something that you know going far isn't far enough. Uh, you have to go as far as everybody, or you are suspect of, of being right. uh, disloyal. And, and violating the norm. And we often have that attitude with some of our current strong norms, say against racism or sexism or whatever. It's not enough just to generally be against those things. <laughs> Any suspicion that you aren't fully aggressively against them as much as you possibly can is taken sometimes as a sign of disloyalty mm-hmm. and therefore being for those things. Um, and so in that world, people are looking out for any of these signs. It's like looking out for a sign of disloyalty against Stalin. <laughs> Anyway, you didn't stand up clapping as long as you possibly could is, is a sign that you're really against Stalin. So anyway, you don't, you know, you know, loudly say that rape is terrible, sexism is terrible, racism is terrible as loudly as you possibly could is, can be taken as a sign that you mm-hmm. are in favor of those things. And so now if you talk in some other context about something, uh, there's this possibility someone could read that and they say, well, look, you didn't speak out against these things as loudly as you could, therefore we can accuse you of actually being mm-hmm. a racist or sexist, et cetera. And uh, right. that's this game that's open. Now, you know, in the ancient world, uh, people would know you and they could take each thing you said in a lot of context. And of course, in our world, if you if you have a blog post, people could read the whole post and read a few others and to take into context. But in a world where they are just eager to be part of a mob that, w- you know, wins from their mob's point of view, uh, they don't necessarily have an incentive to do that. So if you say something that, and somebody says, well, look at the way this person said this. Uh, they obviously support rape mm-hmm. or sexism, et cetera. 
then other people can look at those words, look at that accusation. They can say, well, from those words, yeah, I could see maybe uh, that that accusation might apply. And then they don't necessarily feel they need to go any further. That is, uh, they, they just, they've got, they've, you know, they've got a, they've got a victim. They've got a target. (laughs) They've got somebody they can tar with this accusation and they just go with it. Uh, cause, cause, cause there's this game of trying to show how loyal you are to Stalin (laughs) or to whatever it is by, um, being eagerly against, uh, the, the, you know, the, the criminal, the, uh, the evil person. So here's something we could go deeper on, on this point. You stress throughout the book that a lot of these processes you're talking about are largely unconscious and there are good evolutionary reasons for us to be very good at not being aware of these things. But I wonder sometimes about, you know, especially with the phenomena of online mobs and kind of, you know, viral moral outrage. I'm curious what you think about how much of that is conscious and how much of that is unconscious. Because certainly for a fair number of people, it's probably stratified, right? I mean, like for some people, it's very unconscious. They're doing what you were just describing uh, without, you know, you know, much reflection or self-awareness of, of the larger kind of, you know, signaling games that they're playing. But I often think about how, you know, probably more educated people, higher IQ people who are playing the same game, uh, especially, I I guess I have in mind, I'm not going to call out anyone by name, but I have in mind, you know, journalists really who, who, who are, you know, smart people, reflective people, and they have strong incentives to, to play up these sorts of uh, phenomena. So I'm just curious, you know, how you, how, how unconscious do you think it is? And do you think that for some people it, you know, that these sorts of perverse and, and motivated and, and, you know, quite disingenu- disingenuous and harmful um, behaviors uh, are actually quite conscious for some people? Well, I'm sure it definitely is quite conscious for some people. Yeah. Uh, but the thing, one of the things I think I've learned from writing this book and thinking about this topic is how much of a continuum there is between extreme consciousness and unconsciousness. Hmm. Uh, so our simple model of ourselves uh, says that if we were conscious of something, we would, of course, like take it into account in our thinking and take all of its implications into account. Uh, we, we have this model of ourselves we like to present, which is integrated. All the different things we're conscious of are integrated into all the other things we think that we've, we've noticed all the connections and, and we've taken those all into account so that we have this consistent integrated perspective. That's the way we like to present ourselves. And people, of course, if they find an inconsistency, they point it out and we're embarrassed by it and we try to make an excuse for why we didn't notice or take that into account. Right. So that's our presenting theory of ourselves is that we've got it all integrated and it's just not true. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we are quite often mildly aware of something in one context and then we let it slide away and we you know, forget to integrate it with the other things we think or say. Right. And, and so uh, I think um, quite often people are aware, ooh, I found a juicy tidbit here that I could do something with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, you know, think of the accusations they could make. And in the moment of thinking of the accusations, they think they are sincere accusations. <laughs> but other, another part of them just noticed how juicy this was. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and they just aren't very integrated there. And that's how most of us are for most things, really. Right. So um, I, I think this simple model of a, of a sharp line between conscious and unconscious is just wrong. Right. And and that's what makes it hard to talk here about how conscious we are of these things. Because it really varies from person to person, context to constants, day to day, and it varies counterfactually with if you had done it this way or said it that way. Right. 
Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I think that's right. You're a bit of a futurist. So I wonder, do you ever think about these particular issues we're talking about now, especially kind of the, basically the, these issues around intellectual life, expressing oneself uh, publicly, and how that interacts with incentives on, on social media and internet platforms. Do you think about this particular issue at all um, from a kind of futuristic perspective? Like, do you have any intuitions about how you, how you see this playing out and in the near future? Because, you know, I think you could see it going different ways. In my view, you could imagine, I mean, right now there are, I think, very strong incentives for people to not, you know, think honestly and clearly uh, and, uh, and aloud in public. And I, I think we all know from personal experience, from all of our different personal, you know, conversation channels, there's a lot of talking going on in private right now that a lot of people would not, you know, are, are too afraid to, to put out there in public. So if do you, we could imagine the, the future kind of going more and more in that direction where people are increasingly afraid to, to think aloud. Uh, or we could imagine that maybe we're maybe there will soon be some sort of um, tipping point or something like that where, you know, the the insanity and stupidity of the, you know, social media outrage dynamics become increasingly kind of understood and processed by, you know, most, you know, thinking people and they just kind of lose their traction. And maybe we might see like all of this stuff giving way to soon some sort of blossoming of or resurgence of of honest online dialogue as episodes such as yours um, increasingly kind of uh, perhaps uh, pull down the veneer of what's really going on. Well, there's two separate issues to, to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, one is just the way that human conversations and group crowd dynamics have always had problems. Right. And the other is what is changing now with social media. Right. So I do think there's a bit of a bias to tend to want to attribute recent events to recent technology changes. Sure. Um, you know, in general, um, that sounds sexy because tech- recent technology changes are sexy and um, but it's usually just not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of the things that go wrong in society are things that have gone wrong for a long time. And recent technology is, in fact, I mean, I'd say that's same about, say, uh, unemployment. You know, people want to focus on automation and robots as the main explanation for recent unemployment. And again, it's just not very plausible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this happens over and over again. <laughs> you know, people want to lay blame. But it is, right. you know, an interesting question. How are How is social media changing the way we talk? Mm-hmm. And how long will that last, or what will be the changes upcoming? Right. And I don't, I don't have any, anything deep to offer about social media. I mean, it definitely seems like there have been some changes caused by social media, and the fact that they're relatively recent, you know, by itself suggests they won't last, right? Right. You know, because most things that are recent don't last. I mean, most things don't last very long. Uh, fewer things last a long time. Sure. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very interested in, in where it's going to go and how it'll change. But I mean, my, my biggest you know, obvious factor going on here is, is we've had this rise in political polarization mm-hmm. and uh, that's hasn't peaked yet. And we seem to be at something of a historical, unusual maximum in terms of space and time in the United States mm. in particular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at this moment compared to, uh, you know, the, the many centuries there, there have been times in the past where it's been very polarized. And I think that's what you should look back to as, as the best reference point for where it could go now. I wouldn't really focus so much on social media per se. I'd say, well, what's happened in the past when groups of you know, societies have become very polarized, a lot of internal conflict. Hmm. 
and you know, all through history, people have had, you know, people being accused of violating norms and you know, madness of of crowd justice, and uh, that goes way back. Right. Uh, it's not a new thing, but particular. Um, perhaps you know, obviously, so, something that's newer is that it's possible to just see a lot of what people say. Right. And so it's it's easier to just go pick out any one thing somebody says and say, ah, look, this violates the norm, and you can take it out of context. So there's certainly a potential for really, um, you know, going far in the direction of, of really enforcing norms against doing anything in that could possibly be read a certain way because people can see so much more of what we're doing. So a high surveillance society uh, definitely has, you know, stronger potential. Of course, people have noticed this for a long time, right? This is an old theme of the 20th century <laughs> that uh, stronger surveillance allows a stronger government and a stronger social pressure through norms of behavior. Right. Right. So that's interesting. So you think about partisanship as probably the more important key kind of factor in a lot of these debates that many people diagnose as social media debates. Well, it's the thing that stands out to me about the thing that's happening in social media today is it's how it interacts with partisanship. If I, if I look at things that aren't very partisan, I see a lot fewer problems. Yeah. I think that, no, I think that's totally right. That's definitely right. Interesting. Okay. Well, Maybe we can we can push the ball forward a little bit. We don't need to uh, obsess about that unless there's anything you you wanted to go deeper on. No. Um, I asked you earlier what was perhaps the weakest part of the book. Um, if there were any particular claims or premises of, of the project that you think are perhaps most vulnerable, but maybe an, a, another way to frame that or a, a a more productive way to to extend that question is to ask thinking kind of as a social scientist and and as uh, perhaps student of these matters and, you know, for people who are intellectually curious about pursuing the, the, the leads opened up by your book and working on this sort of stuff more, what do you see as kind of the big juicy questions that still need a lot of attention on that front or, or perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps oh. ideas that still seem plausible to you, but perhaps need to be tested more that haven't really been uh, fully validated as much as you might be curious to see? Well, to, to me, the intellectual priority here is obvious in terms of what to do next. Mm. Uh, that is, the, the basic theory, as I said, is something that psychologists think is quite plausible. Uh, therefore, you know, they even don't think the book is very interesting from the point of view of that basic theory. Yeah. Uh, the content is in all these specific applications. In each area, I think we made a reasonable, plausible case for our hidden motive. We didn't make an absolute solid case. So of course there's more work to do in each area pursuing those details, mm -hmm. you know, trying to make a stronger case, but I think we made a pretty strong case in most of them. Mm -hmm. uh, the obvious thing that's missing is lots more cases. Uh, you, you would think that if, if, if through showing in 10, 10 examples that we had made a persuasive case that uh, there's a lot of hidden motives mm -hmm. uh, that the, you know, the obvious thing to do would be to look for more in other areas. Mm -hmm. uh, to continue on to say, well, gee, how many other things do we are we wrong about our motives? Right, and uh, you know, and that's what I would hope to inspire other people to do. And, and maybe if there's enough demand, you know, a popular enough book for this time, then maybe we do a follow up book on others. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think the basic theory needs to be much stronger to make it plausible. There might be hidden motives, but you know, that doesn't take you so far you have to go into the details of any one area to see if there actually are hidden motives there. So I think, you know, you basically have to suspect there are hidden motives and then, you know, 
have a set of plausible candidates and then go into the details of each area to work out which motive most plausibly explains the, those details. Right. So I don't think we need much abstract theory there. We just need to work out to look at those details in each area. Mm-hmm. And then um, to, uh, to, to look for more areas. You know, it, uh, and it, it just occurred to me, it's interesting how this interacts with the partisanship dynamic that you mentioned, because in some sense, Part of one of the one of the big problems of the polarization we see today is <laughs> precisely that people don't trust the other camp's motives. You know what I mean? So it's kind of fascinating to think about that because, in some sense, you know, someone who reads your book and uh, is kind of inspired or stimulated by it, you know, could very well go out into the world and you know be more inclined to to be suspicious of the motives of the opposing camp. And then you know we know what happens from that. There's a kind of backfire phenomenon, and then the, right. the, the <laughs> Polarization, well, therefore, I, increases. Have you thought about that? I don't know. So so actually, the stereotype I've heard, which does sound a little closer to the truth, is that the left thinks the right is evil, and the right think the left is stupid. Hmm. Uh, or, you know, not so much stupid as just not willing to, you know, admit obvious things because they are so enamored of, of liking their own motives. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a little different framing. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it, it does come down to a lot of distrust uh, <laughs> across the divide. Uh, and, and of course, a willingness. And, and, and people have long, as you said, been noticing that their rivals are hypocrites. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's always been available to them as an explanation for why people disagree with them and why people are on the other side. Uh, it's just something they find it hard to see in themselves. Um, right. Right. So I, it, it seems to me the more promising path then is to focus on ways in which you are deceiving yourself rather rather than going out and trying to sniff out ulterior Well, actually, motive. then I, I don't recommend that either. <laughs> so oh, okay. So I, I, I think we actually have a pretty limited budget of honesty. Right. We, we humans are just not capable of, of shining the harsh light of, of truth on too many different areas at once of ourselves. That's just not something we're up to. Our subconscious is just too powerful. It, it will overwhelm whatever sincere energies we have to uh, to look at those. Why things. do you think? Why do you think that is? You think it would be maladaptive to be too honest, or um, it's just too so, much energy? So your conscious your conscious mind isn't the president or king of your mind. Its job is to be the press secretary. Its job is to make up good looking explanations. Right. And so it it has the sufficient resources to do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have sufficient resources to go do massive reforms of the rest of the mind. Uh, it, it isn't in charge. It doesn't run those things. Right. Uh, it runs the presentation of the self to the outside. That's mainly what it's doing, and that's the, you have the resources sufficient to do that in your head, mm-hmm. but you actually don't have the resources sufficient to go make all those other changes. Right. Um, so you, you, it's just not your job. <laughs> You've not been authorized, et cetera, right? Right. And, and so I, I think the most promising thing is just to look at the average person, you know, in the world in history or in your society and ask what the typical motive is, setting aside partisanship just across all the groups you can imagine. And then maybe doing a little more refinement in terms of which subgroups have which differences. And then assume that you are like everybody else. Right. Uh, but I think understanding those typical motives will take you a long way to understanding uh, beha- behavior and what's wrong with the world and how you could make it better. Uh, I actually don't think understanding your particular deviations from those averages is being especially useful in helping the world. Okay. But I think it's where people's minds go because, again, the key thing people read here is I'm. we are accusing people of hypocrisy. Yeah. 
which in a sense we yeah. are. <laughs> and hypocrisy is a thing that people are ashamed of and they there's a norm against it. And the first thing they think of is, oh my goodness, am I at risk of being accused of hypocrisy? Because that's exactly what your you know, press secretary mind is job is doing. So that's the first task that comes to mind. Oh my goodness, am I open to an accusation of hypocrisy here? Right. And so the first thing it wants to do is defend itself against that. You know, where am I vulnerable? How can I pace that up? How can I defend them? I, and look, it's, there's a dike, <laughs> there's holes in the dike, water's pouring in, where can I plug it? <laughs> so that I can be safe against those accusations. So the first thought people have is, how can I go look for these, you know, holes and fill them to be protected. <laughs> I see. Because that's its job. Your, your, your conscious mind's job is to protect yourself against those accusations. And so that's where peop, most people's minds go first. Right. Is where am I hypocritical? How can I stop? How can I, or at least how can I protect myself from accusation? I see. And as I said, you, you aren't up to this task, honestly. You, you, there's the whole, there are too many holes. The, the water is pouring in everywhere. I'm sorry. So it's too late. So, but yeah. you, you can understand the larger world around you. Uh, because your mind isn't going to protect itself so much from that. That's interesting. So here, okay, so I guess we've come across something now that I, I could kind of push back on a little bit because I feel, I think I'm much more bullish than you on our capacity as humans to basically kind of rewire, not not rewire our, our psychology or our brains, but more like rearrange our circumstances uh, in such a way as to really significantly alter oh, sure. how these things Oh, sure. I'm going to grant you on that. That is... If your your world changes, you will change your behavior to adapt to the world. So yeah. I, I am mostly recommending changing. If you want to make yourself better, make the world around you better. Right. Instead of c committing yourself to a plan and devoting yourself to uh, to a, to a cause and and reaffirming your your you know intention to do better, I, I don't think that works very well. <laughs> yeah. But the more you can change your context to give you different incentives, yes, that works great. So as you may know, I've been promoting prediction markets for a long time. Right. And so I know many people in what's called a rationality community, and they can often be seen as people who are just trying to commit themselves to being more rational by, you know, pr practicing rationality techniques and studying rationality problems, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I'm not too optimistic about that relative to changing your context, such as betting. So I say, well, if you just put yourself in a context where you are expected to bet on things, and people, it's okay if people challenge you to bets, that will change how careful you are. Mm -hmm. And you will then be more rational because you will know that something you value is on the line if you aren't. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a good example of, yeah, designing institutions or just creating mechanisms for, you know, altering, you know, how these processes work and affect us. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, that's interesting. So maybe something else I could ask you about is, there was something specifically that you said in uh, Sam, in the Sam Harris talk you did recently um, that I found very intriguing and and provocative, but you guys didn't have I don't think very much time to to talk about it motive and you kind of how you thought about the profit motive and how that uh, you know factors into your larger story about unconscious biases and your answer I, I found very interesting because you said that basically whatever holds people accountable across long distances tends to look like money in your view. Uh, but you, you acknowledge that the space of institutions is large and that if there's a way to do this better, then, then we should keep searching for that. And that struck me as very fascinating and, and, and a very promising point to maybe talk a little bit more about with you because, you know, a lot of people kind of see you and, and, and some of your colleagues as generally right leaning, you know, you're seen as a kind of lib libertarian economist, and I actually think 
you know, there's a lot of space for very profitable discussion between even radical left wingers and people such as yourself, because as you acknowledge, you know, you have a very open mind towards potentially re-engineering institutions that left wing people find aberrant, like, you know, whatever it might be, the money system or capitalism or, or whatever it is, you're very open to that. And you acknowledge that there might be interesting possibilities in, in that direction. Um, but you're also, you know, very skeptical of that, which is very useful for anyone who's genuinely interested in trying to engineer, uh, you know, alternative institutions. So I thought we might talk a little bit about that. Could you say, uh, you know, could you maybe just expand a little bit on what you meant by the space of institutions is large? And maybe in particular, you could go a little bit deeper on what you see as possibly the most interesting uh, specific paths within, within that within that large institutional space you had in mind? Sure. So uh, the usual qualifiers at the beginning, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I tend to say that I lean libertarian. Um, and of course, libertarians tend to deny that that's especially conservative as opposed to liberal. Right. <laughs> or, or left versus right. Right. Um, but, um, you know, this sort of the, the dominant intellectual world is relatively left, and so pretty much everything that's not part of the dominant world tends to be lumped together. So I accept that you know collective lumping, right? As not not in the middle of the distribution. Um, I, I see, yeah, much more the a common interest with people who are just willing to think about institutional change mm-hmm. and uh, less interested in where they sit on the political spectrum. That seems to me not much information about them and and what they're thinking about. Right. I'm much more interested in which particular proposals they have. Uh, there's this recent book out by Weil and Posner called Radical Markets, and they present themselves as, you know, from my point of view, they seem to present themselves as relatively left, although they say they get as much accusation from the left as they do from the right hmm. of betraying their causes. Interesting. But, uh, you know, I, I think they have a number of interesting proposals there, and I, I did a you know blog post re- reviewing those. Cool. Um, and, um, and so I'm very open to a lot of institutional uh, variations. Uh, I... The, the biggest institutional proposal I have made is something that I've called Futarchy, uh, perhaps not a well-chosen name, <laughs> but it's stuck, so I should keep with it. And that's a form of governance based on betting markets. Uh, and the slogan is vote on values, but bet on beliefs. Mm. And so in, in that scenario, uh, you still have a legislature, uh, elected legislature, and they would still pass bills, but those bills would mainly just modify and man and monitor the man, uh, measuring of some national welfare function, mm-hmm. and they decide how much trees counted and how much uh, leisure counted and international respect counted in this national welfare function, and then we'd use betting markets to tell us which policies would increase national welfare, and uh, then. The, the speculators, even though they're profit-oriented, they would be happy to, say, embrace socialism if they thought socialism would actually achieve national welfare because that's what would win them money. Right. Uh, and so it's like the old saying that uh, the communists used to have, that the capitalists will sell us the rope or the guns to hang them, uh, which was true. Uh, each capitalist just wants to sell you their guns. Right. And they don't much care what you're going to use them for. If They might care, but they can't influence it much, so they mainly focus on their personal profit. So in this scenario, the betting markets would, in fact, uh, produce um, good estimates about what policy consequences uh, w- would be, and therefore we would adopt whatever policies would actually give us the thing we say we wanted. So... Uh, a world where the voters decided they cared a lot about international respect or equality uh, would produce policies that 
produce those. And if they came at the cost of, of civil rights or um, growth and wealth, that's what would happen. Right. Um, and uh, But <laughs> to the extent that people want growth and wealth and are willing to tolerate inequality and are willing to tolerate um, you know, various kinds of greed, et cetera, then uh, those they, they, the speculators would probably choose policies more like our world where um, there's a lot of competition, a lot of inequality, and a lot of growth, and they might even make it better. So I actually think most of the failings of governance in our world are failings by doing things that just hurt most everybody. I mean, yes, there are issues where what's going on is there are disputes of value and some people want some things and other people want other things, and then you know the argument is over whose values win. Right, and and that's a important part of governance. But an, another big part part of governance is just what works, what has what consequences, and I think that's where our biggest failings are. And so, Futarchy is designed to try to solve that second problem and not make the first problem worse. So, as, as long as I can argue that I can have a variation where I, I I do the first part a lot like we do now. I do value aggregation much like we do now. So, it's, and I'm not going to make value aggregation much worse. I'm going to make information aggregation much better by much better finding out what works and, and having policy based on that, then uh, I can argue that that would be a better world. Right. That's really interesting. I, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by that. Do you think that, is that an architecture that you think can be implemented uh, by small groups for themselves? Absolutely. So the, the major limitation there is, is, is not doing small group trials. So clearly uh, any proposal like this, you should start out on small scale trials. That make sense. Lab experiments, uh, small groups, et cetera, right. and work your way up to bigger things. So the bigger, uh, application is mainly described to inspire people about how far you could go with this and therefore why it might be really valuable to work on. Right. But uh, the problem is that the very small scale trials, there's very little energy to this. And so now, now we come back to our elephant in the brain about politics. <laughs> people like you and me and everybody talk about politics as if we were trying to make policy better. Right. And if we're clever and smart, we start to realize institutions matter and therefore institutions could make a big difference and therefore we should think about better institutions. And in that conversation, we're still under the presumption that what we really care about is, is making better policy. Mm -hmm. And we claim in our book, uh, based on a lot of, you know, of the details, that in fact, that's not people's real motivation. What they really care about is showing loyalty to their side. Right. And mainly all of this is a smokescreen. And so, you know, and in fact, you know, you can get people to be, uh, upset and wanting to change social institutions to the extent they see that change of social institutions as favoring one side or other of the political spectrum or, or their social group. So you can get people to be mad about, you know, not enough people are voting or the electoral college structure or, you right. know, uh, term limits or what, people tend to be excited about those things to the extent they think, you know, those changes would favor their side of the political spectrum. Right. Um, but if you have a proposal like, say, approval voting that seems like a good idea but wouldn't necessarily favor any one group, uh, people just lose all interest. They just can't be bothered to care. <laughs> right, right. And similarly, if you say, look, uh, you, there's all these big policies that we could change and make things better in the world, but um, we really need a lot of small-scale experiments. Could you? Are you interested in helping to participate in small-scale experiments? They also lose all interest. <laughs> people love to argue about how the nation should change and how we should change capitalism and reform everything, but as soon as you... <laughs> ask them to do something concrete and local that doesn't obviously like show loyalty to their side, that they just lose it. And that's because they're not really and, trying to engineer that change. They're doing something else. Right. They they're just understand. trying to show loyalty. Right. Exactly. Right. But you think you would say in principle that the futurarchy model, like a left-wing group could take that up and vote on all kinds of left, left-wing well, values. And of course, yeah. that is, you know, supporting futarchy, you know, is basically the question is, 
if we adopted policies with a closer eye to their actual consequences, would the policy be more in your favorite direction? Right. And and you're kind of making a bet on that when you're saying, well, let's adopt a process that would be more careful about looking at the consequences of policies. So so do you think that when you propose policies, the the reasons you give are excuses where you say we're doing it for this reason, but it's not the real reason because it wouldn't really do that much? Or do you think they are the real reasons where, in fact, if we adopt that policy, it really would produce those outcomes and that really would be what people want? So you're, you're kind of making a bet on how sincere you are about your policy arguments. And unfortunately, um, most sides are failing the test. Right. Because <laughs> there's really not much enthusiasm for a more accurate approach to policy. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Because I, I, I actually have not read that much on, on this idea. So it's really intriguing to hear. Do you, now, do you think that things like blockchain are going to interact with this sort of idea to basically empower it, like the ability for autonomous startup cultural groups to basically implement their own communities? Uh, where they vote on their own values and set up, you know, bet on their own beliefs and things like that. Do do you see this as being empowered by by things like crypto and blockchain? In the abstract, in principle, it would, but in practice, it's not turning out that way. Right. Unfortunately. Right. But I, um, I guess we could imagine things like so, like smart contracts, where like these things would be basically well, kind of programmed. Th- right? This 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 is an interesting example. So. Uh, the blockchain community, uh, they like to, I think some of them like to call it the crypto community. I'm happy to use that mm-hmm. word if, if they prefer. Mm-hmm. Um, the crypto community is um, presenting itself as its justification that uh, you know blockchain and crypto will enable new institutions and that they are primarily interested in, in, in creating and adopting new institutions. Right. So they are presenting themselves as that's their main motivation. Right. And... Uh, they're saying key to these new institutions they want to adopt is decentralization. Uh, that many existing alternative institutions are blocked because of centralized institutions that uh, prevent them and that these decentralized institutions can overcome this, both become because current institutions have the problem of not trusting the center and also because we have a center of government today which has laws against things and you can just walk, do an end run around the law with the crypto. Mm-hmm. So that's the rationale that uh, you can op- adopt new institutions. Now, you know, right from the start, there's the doubt about this, which is we have lots of other ways to be adopting new institutions that don't require crypto, and there's very little interest in that. <laughs> yeah. So how come you're all of a sudden interested in crypto-enabled new institutions when you weren't interested in all these other new institutions that you could have adopted directly? Right. And uh, there's the more detailed observation that, in fact, the crypto community so far has spent most of its effort building basic tools and platforms and uh, not actually connecting much with ultimate customers and applications. Yeah. That's- and and that's going to be their downfall if they don't fix that soon. Um, but they get in status in their world mainly by solving software problems. Yeah. And there are lots of software problems in the crypto world. in the uh, and, and there are a lot of the problems that they haven't fully solved, of course. Yeah. But um, they are so eager and they spend so much money and effort solving software problems that they do little else. Right. Well, I guess in their in their defense, their explanation would be that they have to solve those technical problems before the platforms can be more accessible, right? Like, yeah. But there's a lot of things they could be doing without solving the deepest technical problems. So they could they could just be, you know. So you don't have to use blockchain for everything. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, so they have, there's a, sort of a purity thing where they try to you know use blockchain for absolutely everything and do nothing off the blockchain. Right. And uh, they, you know, and that makes the problems a lot harder. And then they think of the worst possible case and they want to solve all the worst possible cases instead of like just trying things and seeing which problems actually show up. Right, right. 
So And so, you know, more it looks like, you know, it's a world where there's these technical problems. And of course, this is, I would say, the main thing that goes wrong in academia. And so this is a different world from academia, but a similar thing is going wrong. In academia, we claim that we are interested in fundamental problems of society, etc. But we mostly use academia to show off. We mostly show off our you know, how the tools we can use and, and how smart we are with respect to arguing and, and data sets and analysis and most, you know, grants and hiring and public you know, journal evaluation is based on how hard something looks. And it's not really based much on how useful it is. Right, right. So do you believe that we could basically engineer small group projects that allow people to optimize their values, also converge maximally on, you know, an accurate model of reality and, and basically do the types of things that academia is pretending to do, but doing it really well, uh, and, 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 and sincerely. We, we could certainly, you know, the key thing is in most areas of life, according to the things we say we want, we know of ways to do institutional reforms that would do it much better. Right. That is, we've, we have ideas, we have theorems, we have small-scale tests, and we could easily continue the small-tails test into the bigger test to show that they really work. Yeah. But there's very little interest. That, I would say, is the key problem yes. in almost all of these reforms. The, it isn't that we don't know how to do things better, is that no one cares. Yeah. Sure. And that's been the puzzle that that drove me and to write this book. Right. And that's... What's yes. going on? Why don't people care? Well, that's that's awesome. And that's w exactly why I'm so, uh, you know, happy to be kind of picking through these issues with you. Because actually, I mean, now that we've talked about kind of uh, ideology and partisanship, and you just brought up academia, I mean, you, you've basically nailed precisely my personal interests and and kind of my larger motivation and, and, and what I'm interested in doing. Because you know, I, I was an activist based, uh, like a radical left-wing activist, like really involved, uh, diehard kind of like organizer and, and person who goes to meetings and things like that, like really. And I guess, I don't know, uh, I guess I was, um, stupid enough to, to really be sincere and earnest about that. Like I really, not that I'm like a better than anyone. I'm not saying I'm like above the, the processes you outline in your book. I'm sure I have tons of unconscious biases and even my description of this is, is self-serving. And, you know, I, I understand all of that. I'm not saying I'm above that. But I guess for me, it's been interesting because I only ever got into radical left wing politics because because I was really genuinely interested in changing in changing things. Like I actually, I've always been very bullish on the ability for human beings to cleverly rearrange things and produce you know significant uh, consequences with using you know intelligence and creativity uh, more radically or more dangerously than other normal people are willing to do. Like that's always been how I saw my interest in kind of emancipatory or, or radical revolutionary politics and social change. And that, so I, I tried really hard for years to basically talk to, to other people who claim to be interested in emancipatory politics and, and revolution and things like that. I tried, you know, I tried really hard to kind of meet them halfway and, and work with them to try to participate in some sort of, you know, significant, uh, beneficial overhaul of, of mass institutions. I kind of got started with all this, you know, with Occupy, which was very stimulating, I think, for a lot of people like me at, at the age that I was at or whatever. Um, so having gone through years of like basically trying to think like an engineer and trying to really genuinely like not just signal, but like really think about how we could fundamentally make society much better. Um, I, you know, after like five years or so, I, you know, I basically came to the realization that it's kind of similar to, to what 
is the implication of your book, which is most of these people are just not trying to do what I'm trying to do. Like they're, they're in a, they're doing something totally different. That's very mysterious. And, and there's, and, and I'm not, I'm not like playing this like fake game anymore. So that interestingly though, happened at the same time that I had, a, I had the same exact kind of trajectory with academia. Like I, I finished my PhD in 2014 and I got, I got it. I was very lucky and got a tenure track job. And now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite well and I'm basically the British version of, of tenured already. And now I'm like, I'm looking around academia and it's a very similar and kind of horrifying realization to be honest with you. It's, I'm actually like kind of struggling with it uh, emotionally and personally, to be perfectly frank with you that it's like, okay, most of these people are not here for the reasons I thought they were here. And, and they're certainly not trying to do what I'm trying to do. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make myself sound better or smart or smarter right. or anything. I'm just sharing the honest, you know, experience of, of what it looks like. Right. So that's sad from the point of view, the world isn't what you hoped it would be, but it's actually great from the point of view of what you can do. Hmm. That is if academia is pretending to do something and it's really not, then you will be able to do a lot more. Right. That is, if, if you're almost at the point or at the point where you ha basically have tenure, right? well, now you've got you know, a lifetime ahead of you of resources and time and, and sufficient prestige that you can pursue these things. And because other people have been neglecting them, you'll be able to make a lot more progress. You know, diminishing marginal returns haven't hit in. You, you, small amounts of effort could give large gains. That's a really positive uh, way to put it. And I appreciate that. Now, do, don't you ever though, like just get uh, does it ever just depress you or make you feel like really kind of dead inside to, to, to be around people who are like fundamentally not really interested in doing what you're. Well, I, I think the key thing is, um, so again, you and I might be presenting ourselves with motives, but we should be suspicious of these presentations <laughs> yeah. and ask what other motives could be going on. And one obvious story here is we really wanted to be part of a world that would respect us and like us for our contributions. <laughs> Okay, And the ability to make larger contributions, but in a world where they won't actually give us much credit for it or care much, that's the discouraging thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, Because right. we can, in fact, make big contributions and they won't care. Right. They won't respect. They won't, they won't give us you know, accolades and awards and promotions and, and et cetera because they won't think we're doing much that counts for what they should respect. Right. Yes. But you can actually do a lot. So now the question is, how much did you really want to do a lot or how much were you just hoping this would be a way everybody would be impressed by you? Right. And if I'm depressed about this realization, maybe it's just because my kind of petty ulterior motives are not going to be uh, satisfied. Right. Yeah. And then that's, I think, again, we, we should kind of expect ourselves to have the same motives that we attribute to everybody else. Yeah, that's really it. I mean, there yeah. are some exceptions, but you know, you, you should ask yourself how plausible is it that you your behavior fits the usual story for everybody else. Right. Um, yeah, no, that's definitely well, well put and appreciated now, but we can go a step further, right? Because we can, we can think about, well, okay. Left-wing activism isn't what I thought it really was. And that was a big waste of time. And academia isn't exactly what I thought it was, but as you said, you know, maybe that's more of an opportunity, uh, than, than anything, but you know, so long as there's so much inertia in both of these institutions and, and many others we could think of, but these are just the ones that I'm thinking about personally, you know, we can think about, well, how could I, or, or you or someone, someone else or groups of people create an institution where, you know, it's like an intellectual community where it is like what I hoped it would be. And it does, you know, flatter my, my preferred uh, traits that I, that I excel in. And, and, and it really is optimizing social change. And it's also optimizing like the radical search for the truth. It sounds like your idea of futarchy, uh, you know, you, you seem 
fairly optimistic about the possibility for humans to engineer these things on small scales. So like how, how maybe more concretely, could you say like, how would someone, if I was like crazy enough to really invest energy in trying to do that, like how would one do that? So, um, you know, you and I are a tiny fraction of the world and we may just be weird with respect to our inclinations and preferences. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we should be much more skeptical about the idea of reforming the whole world relative to the prospect of creating or finding a small community of people who like to do things our way. Right. It it makes much more sense that uh, we might, instead of being all alone with some weird preference and weird attitude, we could find at least a few other people who are willing to be with us. Right. And so, uh, you know, it's a quite reasonable prospect of creating a community uh, which shares some unusual tastes. Now, you know, it depends on your model of yourself what that community will be. <laughs> if you thought yourself as someone who doesn't really care about the social rewards, you just wanted to get things done, mm-hmm. then you're trying to find a community where that's true, and you may never find it because it just may not be true about you. Mm-hmm. Maybe all the people like you really care about the social rewards, and so you need to create a community with social rewards. It's not enough just to create a community that gets things done because they won't like that. Right. Uh, so, you know, it comes down, these, these will be real tests of what your actual motives are. Uh, when you actually try to form a group based on your theory about what your motives are. Right, right. So, and, yeah, go on. Uh, so, but, it, you know, but certainly if your motives are what you think uh, in some way, then you could find other people with those motives. Almost surely you're not the only person. Right. And then you could work together with those other people to uh, to actually get something done, if that's part of your motives. <laughs> Again, it may not be. Um, but, you know, so I certainly think, you know, I, so, for example, I've written on prediction markets for years. Uh, you know, over the years, there's a lot more people who claim interest in it. There's a large academic community and other interests. I, I think most of the academics are distracted from the real problems because they are mostly interested in doing the sort of things that can bring publications, and that is like math theorems or a- analysis of data sets or uh, you know mechanism design, um, you know things like that, um, software, you know simulations. Uh, but the real problem is to, you know, try out simple versions of these things in real organizations and see what goes wrong and fix them, you know, and do that iterative uh, innovation. Right. And there's very little interest of academics to do that. And there's apparently so far very little interest of anybody else either. Right. <laughs> you know, but I'm eager to join with people who are interested in doing that. If I could find them, at least I think I am. And maybe if it was there, I really wouldn't. I'd discover something about my motives. Right. So maybe here's where we've been talking for quite a while. And I think we've done a very solid and responsible job of covering a lot of topics and giving a lot of value. So maybe now I've kind of earned the right to be, can I be a little, can I be a little kooky now and kind of share share with you maybe some of my more uh, uh, strange thoughts on precisely this topic? Because I've been thinking about- You might want to just pick one and then we'll go into it. I don't know how many how many of them we'd have time for, but pick Yeah, pick yeah, one. of course. No, won't, won't, won't uh, tax you too much. But basically, this, this precise question I have been thinking about for quite a while, and my thoughts are, you know, pretty far out there, but I'm curious to hear from someone like you who's also been, you know, at least interested in, in these sorts of possibilities. So I've been thinking a lot about- um, yeah, building, like, how would you build an optimal small community? And from, and I've, I've been thinking about this very much from a kind of um, left-wing perspective, but now, you know, there's really no need for those sorts of ideological, uh, you know, qualifiers. But one of the things that I thought a lot about is how you could basically um, minimize things like lying. And I think a lot of people find this to be very kind of scary. Like it sounds like, you know, surveillance, some sort of lust for 
control and, and surveillance. But it seems to me like a lot of communities, because I've been parts of, I've been a part of communities that have tried to do radical, you know, create a kind of radical microcosm of ideal society, you know, outside the confines of mainstream society. I've been a part of those types of experiments before. Um, and I've always been very interested in them before. And it seems to me that one of the key points of breakdown for people who do try to uh, carry out these sorts of experiments is something that boils down to like lying. And I think it's very similar to, to what you're diagnosing in your book. You know, you like you have this kind of, uh, you know, you have this drive to kind of show and expose how we're, you know, we misunderstand ourselves so consistently and we're constantly kind of deceiving each other. Um, I've always thought like if people wanted to, like for other people like me who, who, who believe that we could make a much better, at least a, a much better social group. Um, one thing you could do is you could create mechanisms to basically um, monitor each other's natural tendencies to, to deceive. And I, you've made some good points about how you probably wouldn't want to do that too much uh, because, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary and useful to, to do those sorts of things. Um, but I recently had a conversation with someone who, uh, with with a uh, blockchain developer, uh, an expert in uh, Solidity, the the, chain, the the language for um, Ethereum, and I was picking his brain on on, on the tech the technical aspects of the viability of the sort of thing. But I've been personally very interested, and again, this is probably just my temperament. I'm sure there's not that many people that are interested in this, but I've always been interested in like what would happen if you could get a bunch of people together, um, and you all basically could could credibly commit to and kind of enforce. Um, radical honesty uh, um, amongst each other. And I was talking to him about how you could maybe do this through uh, through some sort of like blockchain engineering where you have basically smart contracts that are like hooked up to um, like high, you know, assuming, you know, like lie detection tests get more sophisticated or something like that. You could hook a smart contract. Uh, you could like hook your house up with speakers that are constantly feeding all of the audio into uh, some sort of... Uh, Hot, you know, highly accurate lie detection system. And if you cross a certain threshold of lying a certain amount of times, then the smart contract will fire and move money away from you or something like that. You can imagine, you know, with a, a, a right. sufficient... You don't need anything that complicated. <laughs> no, no, okay. <laughs> I mean, m many, many groups over the years, I don't know if you're aware, have experimented with various kinds of radical honesty and, and they've done it based on much simpler technologies. Okay, and, and it works. And they have succeeded to some degree about creating more honesty, but they haven't succeeded in creating such viable communities. I see. That is, the, the hard part seems to be how to handle the honesty, uh, not how to create the honesty. It certainly seems possible through simple, many simple mechanisms to create more honesty. Right. If you want it. Well. Uh, the question is, do you really want it? And so uh, the hard part has been these organizations that have the radical honesty, people report a lot of disruption as a result of that radical honesty and a lot of running away from it and a lot of other things that go wrong because of the radical right honesty. absolutely and, and so you make a very good point that you don't need you know fancy technologies for achieving the honesty but the the reason why i think it's interesting and maybe uniquely attractive is because what it can do is it can it can guarantee the incentives it can guarantee that the rewards will be there so you know as you said the, the real bottleneck but people have already been successful at guaranteeing incentives for honesty. That, that is, people have succeeded in creating honesty through incentives for honesty. That is work. Okay. Okay. But what, yeah. <laughs> but they don't necessarily like what they see and what they get out well, of it. Well, as you put it, though, you said the bottleneck is being able to handle the consequences of that. Like the, the fallout from that honesty is what creates creates yes. issues that then lead to, to fissure or failure or whatever. Um, and in fact, that's been the major obstacle to prediction markets and organizations. 
I mean, prediction market is a simple mechanism that produces honesty, and the honesty it produces has been the problem. Right. I mean, but that's just one example. I, I, I know of other kinds of organizations that have produced honesty through other mechanisms, and they also have the problem. Right. That result from honesty. right, and so my my curiosity, and and again, I'm, I'm perfectly transparent. This is just you know far out utopian kind of imagination. I'm, I'm I'm just wondering and trying to think about trying to think it through, but I guess I'm curious if these evolving technologies might provide some sort of key to precisely that bottleneck because I want I just wonder if you could you could basically solve this with with programming in some sense, if we know what those breakdowns are going to be from our model, from our models, right? If you, if you knew what the problem was, I'm sure you could express solutions in code. Right. I don't know that you need the code to express the solutions, but uh, you could, I I think, you know, the code is a distraction from what is exactly the problem and what is, what are the solutions? So, I mean, the key thing is we're pretty clear that sort of radical, simple radical honesty, where just everybody's honest about everything doesn't work. Right. So then the question is, okay, we have to search in the space of who is honest about what, when, uh, and which things work. So in our society, we, we certainly have some mild degrees of radical honesty. That is, if there's a murder, you're allowed to be honest about that. If you have evidence about a murder, it's okay for you to come forward that, with that evidence and accuse someone of murder, pointing to the evidence. We are radically honest about that, at least most of the time. Right. Okay. So we have achieved some degrees of radical honesty on some topics sometimes. Mm-hmm. And those are topics where we've found a way to accommodate that radical honesty with the rest of society, and it works okay. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how many other topics and people can we survive radical honesty with? How far can it go? So we have to search in the space of those things. Right. Of who's allowed to be honest about what, when, where, who's allowed to, you know, be honest about what about themselves, about what other people, which topics, what kind of evidence they're allowed to be honest with. Right. There's just a huge space of possibilities. And you just have to search in that space to find more things that work. I mean, again, our, most of our societies have some degree of honesty. That is, there's some amount of things you're, it's okay to be more honest about. At least if you do it a certain way, you have a certain status. Right. Right. Uh, and, and the groups that have tried the just let's be honest about everything, that's gone badly, typically. Right. Right. And uh, you know, where, where in the middle can you sit? Right. Okay. Interesting. And that is, that, that is the key obstacle to prediction markets. That is, the thing people need to do is to search in that space. Search in the space of which prediction market topics, who who initiates them, what topics are allowed, what participants are allowed, what rewards they, they get, who can see what the current estimates are, who can see current performance of different people. There's a, just a huge space of possibilities there. Right, right. And uh, hopefully somewhere in that space are solutions that can work uh, better than what we have now. Uh, but the simple variation of just taking your most important topics, setting up a market that gives you honest answers about it, and then sitting back and waiting for the information to flow in isn't working. Right. Usually somebody gets upset because the market contradicts them and makes them look bad, and they get it shut down. Right. Okay, that's interesting. That's really useful to hear. So so basically you don't see any kind of current or emerging technologies as especially uh, useful for this sort of problem. Well, again, prediction market is a technology, yeah. but the, the technology itself, you know, allows the creation of more honesty, uh, but it doesn't fully solve the consequences of honesty problems. Right. The main bottleneck you think is just that most people don't want to do this kind of thing. <laughs> well, or, you know, so I, I can go into more detail on a concrete example to make it clearer. Uh, some of the most dramatic successes of prediction markets have been about project deadlines. So often in organizations, people talk about uh, having deadlines and they have 
review meetings where they say, how are we, what's the chance we're going to make the deadline? And then often people say, yeah, we're going to make it. it. Looks like we're on track. And then they're consistently wrong. Right. And often people in the organization at those meetings are rolling their eyes <laughs> saying, no way, but uh, everybody's supposed to say that we're going to make the deadline. Right. So you, you can actually make a simple prediction market on will we make the deadline. And that works great to actually reveal if we're going to make the deadline. If you allow people who know to participate anonymously and get rewarded anonymously, then they're happy to tell you, no way, we're going to make the deadline. The problem is that takes away political options from the people running the projects. Right. So people often use the perception of whether we'll make the deadline or not as a way to motivate effort. They want to put you right on the border of thinking you might make it or you might not, depending on how much work you do. If you're, if you're pretty sure to make it or pretty sure not to make it, then you don't put as much work in. and that, that, That's not what they want. And also the people running projects, a favorite excuse if the project fails is something came out of left field at the last minute. No one could have seen it coming. It'll never happen again. And that excuse goes away if you've got this track record of the uh, prediction market saying all along, you're not going to make the deadline. Right. Right. And so those people and their managers want the excuse that um, we, we couldn't see it. No one could have seen it coming. And, and those that's just a concrete examples of the kinds of obstacles here to radical honesty in organizations about deadline. Right. Right. But it should give you an idea of how many other obstacles there are in most real groups and organizations about deadlines. I mean, another example would be, you know, imagine when you're about to get married, you could anonymously do a, a, an incentivized polls of people around you about how long your marriage is going to last. <laughs> you want to do it <laughs> right now? You could ask the you know the ten people who know you best for 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 a frank appraisal of, of yourself and your faults. Right, right. Do you do it? <laughs> right. Well, I want probably no, I don't. But I wonder if the reason is because I don't want to know, or just because I don't know those people. Like if I was friends with the with the kinds of people who would do that and wouldn't wouldn't punish me socially for the for the request. You know. Well, again, you could you could take the three closest friends you know. Yeah. Who, who you do trust, and you could say, just give me a private assessment of me and my faults. And, and, and I promise I won't be mad at you. This is really what I want, and you'd be doing me a service to just give me a, you know, a few paragraphs of your summary of my biggest problems. Right. Uh, you know, you could pick three people that you that you respect and that you know well, that you trust not to tell other people. Right. Um, but do you still do, do you ask them? No, of course, I don't generally go out of my way to do that, right? <laughs> But we all of us could, but hardly anyone does. Right. Do you do that kind of thing? No. No, I don't do that. Do you? Do you? I'm not. I'm, I'm not claiming to be a radical honesty. Oh I'm, no, I, I'm not claiming. No, no, I that that we all should be honest about everything. That I don't see that going well. Right. You're. You actually, as you said earlier in the podcast, you actually don't think it's very necessary or promising for people to really challenge that that uh, dimension of things. It, we have a limited budget for honesty, and focusing it on yourself uh, is just you're going to spend it really fast. It'll be done. Right. We can better work together to produce shared social institutions that will produce honesty on the things that are most important to us. Right. But you don't think if a bunch of people got together and committed to doing this sort of work on themselves as a, as a community that that could maybe bootstrap themselves into some sort of like totally different equilibrium of, of like healthy, productive social functioning? Well, a number of groups have tried that. There are still some groups in that current effort of trial. Okay. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, but mostly it hasn't inspired <laughs> much other uh, efforts to copy them. Right. Okay. Uh, th th I think there's this uh, book out now uh, by a guy named Dalio, who's, who runs a hedge fund uh, on honesty, basically. Hmm. And he, he's tried to produce honesty in his hedge fund. Interesting. And uh, he has a whole book about, you know, how you just have to tough through it, basically. <laughs> 
you know, if, if you know, you, there's these things you don't want to see about yourself and you don't want to see about others, but you know, if you just, just, just force yourself to do it, it'll, you'll be better in the long run. Right. Right. And then that's kind of the attitude for a lot of these honesty groups is this. They, they feel pain and they just, you know, try to push through it to uh, gain the advantages of honesty. And the question is, you know, how long can that last and how many people are willing to do that? Right, right. Well, thank you for entertaining my, my kookier and undeveloped. Uh, no, I mean, it's a very a straightforward and very plausible idea, of course. And it's based on our standard account of ourselves as somebody who wants honesty. So most of us tell ourselves that we want honesty. Right, right. And we're not really being very truthful there. <laughs> But, but we find it hard to give up. So again, people find it much easier to uh, assign low motives and be cynical about other people than themselves. And so, especially young idealistic people. And of course, some people are going to be more idealistic than others, and some people are going to be more willing to be honest than others. I mean, supposedly, people who are on the autistic spectrum are, in fact, more willing to be honest mm -hmm. and want more honesty from others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I don't need to uh, push that issue anymore. Um, I think I've had you for uh, almost an hour and 45 minutes now. So I think I don't want to overtax you. I'm very grateful for your time and attention and your mental energy. I hope. Uh, well, let me just mention one last yeah, thing, uh, an excuse to mention my other course, book, yeah. <laughs> The Age please of Him. And, and, and the angle here will be on our motives regarding future. Okay. So, um, great. you know, we we have motives regarding the future and we have what we believe our motives to be regarding the future. And I think there's a difference between there as, as well as others. And I think that gets in the way of doing futurism well. I see. So um, by book, The Age of M is an attempt to just take a particular scenario very seriously and carefully and work out all the lots and lots of details. And I think I successfully did that. Uh, the, the scenario is brain emulation, uh, if that were the first kind of cheap artificial intelligence. Right. Um, and I, and I think, you know, most people who know the various sciences that I'm drawing on will acknowledge that I've mostly done a reasonable job of analyzing those consequences and finding a lot of consequences. Yeah. Um, but most people say, yeah, but that's not very interesting <laughs> in the sense that, uh, people have said to me, well, they like their futurism in the form of fiction. Couldn't we write some fiction here? And people are really all over fiction. They love it. They like the like TV show Westworld and people constantly say, well, you know, how plausible is that? And it's not very plausible, but um, people just, they love to be part of of these cultural things where there's people talking about the future and as future images. And that's happened with movies and TV shows. They like Star Wars and Star Trek and mm -hmm. they like Battlestar Galactica. And then they have all these futurist conferences where people get together and they have inspiring talks. And it seems basically that people... You, you know, it's often been mentioned in, about science fiction and other things. People are mainly using the future as a way to talk indirectly about today. Right. As a metaphorical place where today's issues play out not quite as directly described. And as a metaphorical way to talk about today and about basic values, uh, it's very engaging and fun. Right. Um, but once you actually get into thinking about the actual future, you realize it's, it's going to be a lot stranger than most of these fictional scenarios or other futurist scenarios. And it's going to be a lot harder to even decide where your values sit there. Right. Uh, that you, should, you should think that people a thousand years ago, if they had been described our rough outline of our world, they would have found it pretty hard to know what the heck was going on and whether they liked or hated it. And that's roughly what you should expect a real future to be like. And, and I'm happy that my book is that sort of a world, <laughs> a detailed world, but it's strange enough that it makes it hard for you to decide if you love it or hate it. Right. For listeners who maybe don't know anything about the book, I should maybe say very briefly, you, you, 
you basically imagine what would happen if uh, brain emulation takes off as kind of the the main uh, vector along which it, artificial intelligence develops. And you do, you're careful, I think, to say that you're not predicting that's going to happen necessarily, but it's not an implausible possible pathway. Right. And right. I don't make much argument for the key assumptions. Okay. Uh, my, my, it's about conditional on those assumptions. Yes. How does the world play right. out? So I, I think this scenario has at least a 1% chance plausibility. And so, because I think it's worth having at least a hundred books in the future, it's worth having my book. Right. Uh, many other people have been arguing about the plausibility of that. And I just, I, again, cut, cutting nature at the joints, it seems like it was worth having a book that was just about the consequences of that. Scenario. That's right. So you just and yes. so many other people have argued about the chances and the philosophy of it. I, you know, a lot of most of the way when the subject comes up, people talk about philosophy like, would a, an emulation really be conscious, or is it just a machine? If you made an emulation of me, is that me or somebody else? And things like that, which is all fun. But then people forget to talk about what would really happen. Right. Exactly. And so you basically just try to spell out what would happen if if that were the path that history takes. And you're, you know, just to very briefly for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, just to very briefly kind of paint the picture, at least as I remember it, and you can fill in any details you think are important. But you basically, uh, the world you imagine resulting from this would be the cities, I believe, basically become uh, like fully occupied by basically computers and, 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 uh, and, you know, I guess brain M's, what you call M's, agents of, of emulated brains. And it, they would basically like most of the energy would go towards like cooling these like massive computational uh, machineries, I guess that that occupy the cities and and humans would mostly live outside the cities. Is that what you imagine? Uh, right. So uh, the M's are so eager to concentrate to a small number of dense cities where they have less congestion travel problems, and so they can really cram each other together and interact a lot. That they're, they're all smashed to a small number of dense cities, so they leave most of the rest of the earth for for the biological humans because they don't care about it. Uh, but most of the wealth and economic activities in these small dense cities, these emulations mostly live in virtual reality in terms of what they see, where you know they never have need to have pain, hunger, disease, crime. Their bodies are beautiful, but they're working most of the time. It's a very competitive world where uh, most M's are copies of the few hundred most productive humans, and so they're elite, like you know billionaires, Nobel Prize winners, that sort of quality. Right. And they run; they can run at different speeds from humans, and most of them run about a thousand times faster than human speed. And so actually their economy doubles every month, but from their point of view, that's roughly every century. So in fact, their society changes more slowly from their point of view than ours does to us. Right. Uh, they, they have to retire after a limited number of work years, uh, even though they have immortality in principle, if they can afford it. Uh, since they can go at different speeds, they can retire more slowly. So the world of retirees is a slow world of slow ghosts, which are more like human speed and have alliances with humans. And this entire age of M only lasts a year or two in objective time after which something else happens, I don't say what. Right. And so even though there are concerns for humans during this period, you should be more concerned. You don't know what happens next. Right, right. Fascinating. So uh, you started writing that, I think, quite a while ago. It's been it's been at least out in some right. form or another uh, for quite a while. So I'm curious, one question I might ask you is, since you initially started writing that book some time ago, have you updated your views on anything particularly significant? Well, of course, uh, I continued, I mean, Diving into the deep uh, details of that book, I continue to evolve lots of detailed images of the world in the book. And part of what happened is that uh, I couldn't stop that process after I finished <laughs> the, the official book. So I kept adding things, which is why I was happy to add more in the paperback version of the book, which just came out a few weeks ago. Okay, gotcha. So so the, so there it is 20% longer and 40% more sites. <laughs> and so, you know, if I had a chance, I'd probably do a third version where I just added more detail. So I was so eager to keep adding more. 
And I've got a whole, you know, file of ideas for fiction in terms of stories and settings and things that could be happening. But, you know, I'm not a fiction writer, so I haven't really done much with that so far. Uh, but I, I certainly have a lot more detailed images of the world. But, you know, the, the basic fact that the world is weird and it's hard to decide what you value about it, that that hasn't changed. I mean, it's hard to imagine what would really change that. Uh, but I, I slowly get more and more, you know, detailed images about what life would be like and what would be their issues. Right, right. Yeah, very fascinating. Well, like I said, I don't want to keep you too long. Maybe if, if, if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you one last question. Great. And it's a, a little bit of a personally motivated question, but I think other people will find it valuable too. Um, I wonder if you have any practical advice. Not, I don't want to ask you about policy prescriptions from your books or anything like that, but I'm, I'm curious if you happen to have any practical advice for young academics or intellectuals more generally who are kind of trying to play a similar game as you in the sense that you have one foothold in mainstream, respectable, prestigious institutions. And you also spend a lot of time doing just totally creative, autonomous, and fairly, you know, radical, provocative, even, you know, dangerous, as we've seen, uh, dangerous to your own reputation, intellectual work outside of your, you know, um, mainstream kind of prestige track. And, you know, as someone, I mean, I'm, I'm only beginning my academic career, really, and uh, I'm, you know, I, no one can really compare like anything I've done to, to what you're doing, but I think I'm similar in my kind of goals, I would say, like I am trying to kind of walk a similar path. And I think anyone who's ever tried to walk that path finds, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really difficult. I mean, there are lots of, uh, things that get thrown at you, um, that make it a very confusing and challenging, uh, tightrope to walk. And so just as someone who, I, yeah. I guess in, in general, it's difficult, but the, the, the basic strategy I recommend is actually pretty simple. Mm -hmm. uh, don't quit your day job. Okay. Give, give in to Caesar. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, initially you're a seller, not a buyer. I see. Uh, that is, um, look, you know, your life is long. Right. And so you're in a rich society. So no matter what job you take in your life, you will have a lot of free time on the side. And you could if you spend a lifetime with that free time, do a lot intellectually. Mm -hmm. So you don't actually need academic support or anything to do a lot intellectually in a lifetime. Right. As long as you just consistently spend a certain percentage of your free time on some intellectual topic, you can do a lot. That's just the nature of being a hopefully smart person in a rich society with lots of free time. Right. Um, you, of course, might hope to do better and, and, and you might well do better. Uh, but, you know, you have to start, start out with some sort of job or position or a student you know, slot. And then you have to give the world around you as much as it takes to get them to like you and respect you <laughs> so that you can stay there, which is the don't quit your day job thing or given to Caesar. So as a young intellectual, you will have to do work that, you know, intersects enough with what other people think is interesting so that they will get gain enough respect that you don't have to spend a hundred percent of your time on that. You're allowed to have hobbies. Right. And on the side, you can pursue things you think are more intellectually interesting, and you probably should just to, to develop your sense there. Right. Um, but if you just do what you think is interesting initially, that'll go badly because you'll lose respect, and now you'll have to, you know, go to some more standard job where it'll take a lot more time and effort. Right. Um, so, you know, again, that, that even that worst case supposedly isn't terrible in the sense that you can spend your free time doing things. Um, but, you know, if you want to, try it. It's not crazy to like try to become a academic or say at a think tank or professor where you'd have more time to pursue interesting 
topics. And in order to do that, you'll, again, you'll have to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. <laughs> you'll have to uh, give the people around you what they want. You're a seller, not a buyer. So instead of thinking what research you would most enjoy reading about, you'll have to ask, well, where's the intersection with what I like and what other people are interested in? So you have to be somewhat promiscuous in your interests. You can't just have one favorite lover <laughs> of a topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the odds that that will match what everybody else wants is pretty low. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll have to be able to be interested in you know dozen topics or more. And for each one, you'll have to check whether it's the sort of thing that will work as something other people like too. Is it you know doable with current tools and current topic and current fashion with this thought to be within the discipline that you're most likely to be successful in, et cetera. Okay, that's great. <laughs> um, but then, you know, but, but, uh, you know, for you personally, it sounds like if you're at the point of basically having tenure, you, you're past all this problem. <laughs> right. You can now just ask, what do you want to do? And, and you have the trade-off. Do, do I want to do things that I just think are interesting and nobody else does? So I'll just have to be talking to myself or other people I can find out there. Or how much of a compromise do I want to make between what I think is most interesting and what the people around me make think is interesting because, hey, they could be pretty helpful. Right, right. Well, I think that's all sage advice. Yeah, I think from my own particular uh, place and my own particular moment, what's kind of uh, tr- difficult, I think, to, to parse for me rationally is that as you say, I am now relatively secure with with my with my paycheck. But now that I am secure, I'm I am I'm blogging like crazy, and I'm doing these podcasts like crazy, and I'm doing. I'm now at a point where like I'm so um, motivated by my totally autonomous, radical, creative stuff that it's really hard to go back to the uh, you know compromise with Caesar work. And so it's good because I'm lucky and and I and I can do this, okay. you know. But it. Well, there's yeah. there's the other issue, which I think is the trade-off between like being involved in the conversation and making things that last. Right. So, so there is this temptation to sort of, if there's a conversation, jump in and, and say things in the conversation and have people respond to you and think you're making a long-term contribution just because you're part of a conversation. Right. And unfortunately, that is not true. Right. In order to make a long-term contribution, you'll have to step back a bit and say, what is the thing I could figure out how to say that would have lasting impact and that might step out of the context of these particular conversations? Right. For sure. I completely agree with that. And I, and I think in those terms also. But I think, I wonder if my perspective as as a, a fairly younger person uh, looking at all of this stuff from kind of the beginning of my career, I wonder if my perspective is maybe a little bit different than yours in some sense. Also, because you know, you're probably, I'm sure you're, you're, you're paid much more than I am. You're more sort of invested in, uh, in academia for me, kind of younger and just sort of looking at the future. I actually am not, I'm not that convinced that the development of a long-term project that is genuinely influential and significant over the long run. It's not, it's not totally obvious to me that academia is the, the pathway to do that. Um, I don't think it should be obvious. No, of course not. If you have other options, you should consider them. But it's just a nice fallback. If at all you do something else, if you can just hold on to that tenured position as an option in the background to come back to, that'd be very valuable. (laughs) Giving that up entirely is much more expensive. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But yes, great. There's lots of other things you could do with your life and be part of projects and make things happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, Sorry, it's not like I'm like looking for you to give me permission or something like that. I'm just curious. (laughs) You don't need my my permission. Of course, yeah. uh, But I do think... so that. I made the transition, like, right after tenure, I started doing lots of blogging and, and writing about things. And it was all very personally satisfying that I could, like, see a new topic and think about it in a day and write four paragraphs that made a contribution. 
And I felt like I was making contributions. But the question is, is anybody ever going to look at those contributions and use them for anything? And I and I came to wonder <laughs> about that. And so that pushed me more to want to write some books. Right. Sure. Uh, where I pull things together more in a way that makes it more accessible to people outside my context and a, and a, and a better chance that um, I'll have an impact. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's basically exactly where I am right now. I'm just uh, doing a lot of reflecting on on the role that academia should or should not play in, in, in my future strategies. But that's why I was just soliciting your input. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Yeah. And I, I'd love to do it again sometimes when uh, after the, after the our audience has faded away and, and uh, it's time to do it again, please let's do okay, it Okay, that's really great to hear. And no, this has been very stimulating and very edifying and, uh, and fun also. So I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed yourself. And uh, I would love to do it again sometime in the future when, uh, yeah, maybe you have some other new book to, to share with us or whatever it might be. I think, and I think my, my listeners will find a lot of this content in this conversation, you know, very uh, interesting to them also. I think it might be fun to just dive into our sort of like political institution stuff, you know, capitalism and, you know, all that sort of stuff that might be fun to, to dive into sometime if you want, want to just take a deep dive into that. Yeah, I would love to, for sure. We, I guess we broached that a little bit with our discussion of alternative institutions and, uh, Right, but we didn't go more directly into critiques of current institutions and, and what their main problems are and what alternatives we might consider to solve, you know, the, the main complaints you might have about existing institutions. Yeah, that's true. That would be a whole other conversation. That sounds good. I'll give some thought to maybe some ideas on that, and uh, I'll let you know if anything comes to mind that we would would be a good pretext for getting back on the mic. Okay, great. Thanks again, Robin. This has been really great. I really do appreciate it. Take care. All right. Take care, Robin.